0: These laws are not there to help people. These laws were there to control people. These kinds of laws are being used to police streets and shelters. They're used very much in the management of schools. So children who are disruptive often get taken to psychiatric hospitals. They're used in workplaces. When conflicts emerge in workplaces, often the underling gets pressure to take psychiatric medications. Then we have it being used for very political purposes, for whistleblowers to be targeted to discredit them. They're widely used against pregnant women.
1: You're listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and this is part two of our discussion with Rob Wapond. Rob is the author of the new book, Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships. Rob, I want to continue the discussion by talking more about the loved ones of people living with mental illness. In part one of this episode, you said that the strongest lobbying groups in the US and Canada working to shape laws and practices surrounding forced treatment are family members and and many times the driving force behind forced treatment are the parents or loved ones of an adult living with mental illness now the doctors the legislators the judges they they just sort of go along with whatever family members say or want to do because they feel like they're in the best position to know I, i do really want to clarify that i do believe that many of these family members are operating in good faith They think they're doing something well. The the lobbying groups, the the mental health advocacy groups, they believe that they're listening to the right people to get help for people who are sick and do need some sort of intervention. But I got to tell you, a lot of this really harkens back to the 1800s and the 1900s and well, frankly, into the 1950s and 60s when a husband could just have their wife committed to a psychiatric hospital for hysteria or for not doing the dishes, or for not knowing how to cook, or for back talking, or frankly because the husband just wanted to have an affair or get their wife out of the way. And there just wasn't any oversight. The husband said it and everyone took his word for it because clearly he knew what was best for his wife. And then just like that, the wife was committed despite what she wanted, despite what she said, and despite what her actual needs may have been. And in some ways, it sounds like we've gone back to that, except we've broadened it to the family and friends have said it versus just the husband, and therefore it's true. Am I overstating this? Because when I talk about how widespread this is, frankly, people don't believe me. They really think that what I'm talking about is ridiculous, and they even tell me, Gabe, there's no conspiracy out there to abuse mentally ill people. The way
0: I'd word it is this. It's just very unpredictable and chaotic what's happening. It's not so, it's not a conspiracy in that way. It's not like there's some organized cabal with one message out there and it's permeated the entire country and this is the way it's playing out. It is much more that mental health and mental disorder as ideas are very nebulous, very hard to pin down or define. And that isn't to say that some people are really, really struggling. But it's just to say, it's not really that scientific. And in any given situation, you know, whether it's more what's happening inside the person or the difficulty of their circumstances that's causing that problem, it becomes harder and harder to kind of really figure that out because it's becoming more common to use this term, to just look at someone who's struggling and say, oh, they must have a mental health problem. Ergo, that's a medical problem. Ergo, we better call 911, and they get taken by police to a psychiatric hospital when that's just an average person who kind of made that assessment just by looking at how the person was behaving, they're just trusting in this whole process. And so the person ends up at the psychiatric hospital. And again, here, this becomes a very subjective sort of process. They don't do brain scans. They just talk to you for 5, 10, 15 minutes, and they start to make a, an assessment as to what they think your situation is on that basis. Honestly, Gabe, when I looked at medical records, I often see that a lot of these doctors do less investigation investigating than I do as a journalist. They do less fact-checking than I do. I was interviewing many of my sources for multiple times for hours on end directly and watching them over periods of weeks and months and a relationship as I like, would come back to fact-check more, see how things had changed, know, all that sort of stuff. Doctors don't even do that in a lot of these cases, right? So because of this breadth now, these kinds of laws are being used definitely to police streets and shelters but they're used very much in the management of schools so children who are distressed or disruptive often teachers or administrators will call 911 and get children and youth taken to psychiatric hospitals they're used in workplaces oh i'm concerned about this person they might be depressed i'm going to call 911 like there's actual training programs in workplaces to get people to do this to each other when they're in distress when Conflicts emerge in workplaces. often, the underling gets pressured into a situation where they may feel pressured or forced to take psychiatric medications. Then we have it being used for very political purposes i found cases with that it wasn 't uncommon for whistleblowers to be targeted by these kinds of um, deliberate attempts to force them into psychiatric evaluations or get them locked up to discredit them. They're widely used against pregnant women. If, if for whatever reason, the medical system wants to get control of a pregnant woman uh, because they don't like their behavior relative to the fetus, there's a lot of conflict. And these laws are being used against pregnant women as well. So, that's the kind of thing we're dealing with here, right? Is a real expansion. Of how these laws are used because they are so unscientific. So, again, I wouldn't say, oh, it's a conspiracy to do X or Y. It's actually really hard to pin down because it's really just a lot of well meaning people mixed in with a lot of nefarious intent and with really unclear laws governing the whole thing and a lack of oversight.
1: But then, why are these laws so widely misunderstood? I think most people feel like these laws are good. Like like you said, many people are well-meaning, and I believe that too. They honestly believe that they are helping, but it sounds like whatever goal they had in mind, when they put these ideas into practice, that's not how these laws are actually being used out in the real world.
0: Yeah, and I think that goes to the real reason we have these laws. And of course, you need to contextualize it so that it doesn't sound like, A conspiracy theory, right? But it's clear that these laws are not there to help people truly, right? These laws were there to control people, which may sometimes overlap with helping them, right? But the the intention is control. And this is something David Cohen talks about a lot. This is the thing that legitimizes everything else. It's like, why can psychiatry get away with such weak science and drugs that look like, you know, of questionable effectiveness in aggregate, and all of these things, and, and sort of the questionable science of diagnoses. And why, why does society accept all of this, right, from psychiatry in a way that it won't accept it from lots of other medical treatments or whatever, right? And it's because somewhere in there, people just feel very attached to the capacity to have this sort of power over a non-criminal a, a non-criminal situation, but to have the ability to exert that kind of power and control. So I don't think in that sense that we are in a different place to, to where we were in the 1950s when women were locked up for the things you were talking about, right? But the reasons are different now, like the reasons given, but it's the same impulse. It's people who are really annoyed or really upset or really frightened by someone else around them, and this becomes the excuse or the legitimation, right? But it is still social control. That's the predominant element. You know, and it's so obvious when you look at long-term care facilities or schools, like, well, that's exactly what it is. The teacher's not able to truly make a diagnosis in the moment. It was The kid was simply doing something that the teacher considered unmanageable. So they're going to send them up to the psych hospital. Well, now the kid's in the system.
1: I think it's also fair to look at fear. Right. People are afraid that if they if somebody warns you, hey, my loved one might do X and then you do nothing and then their loved one does the X that you will be blamed. Oh, yeah. There's this better safe than sorry mentality that we're playing with people's lives. And I understand being afraid. And there's let's face it. There's nothing more scary than than mentally ill. People were 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 unpredictable and, and and nobody wants to get this wrong.
0: Yeah. And it's been amplified exponentially by media coverage and anecdotal stories in that. And I absolutely agree that I think that's widespread in the system right now is a sense that when judges are looking at these situations, attempting to be a neutral party, making a, an assessment independent of the psychiatrist, nevertheless, they still have in their minds, I don't want to be the one that lets somebody go And they might do something dangerous to themselves or someone else. So it seems like in their mind, the safer solution is just keep forcibly drugging them, keep locking them up, right? What could go wrong kind of thing, right? It's like the same attitude we have towards criminals where we just go, gee, well, if they're in jail and restrained forever, gee, they can never commit a crime again. But the reality is, the way this actually plays out in real life is those people often become more violent, more dangerous. uh, They become more harmed. All sorts of terrible things can happen as a result of that better safe-than-sorry attitude. And we really need to look at it and reopen our minds. And, of course, I'm not the only one saying this. In fact, this is the predominant message you get from people who have been forcibly treated. They often just say, hey, I want the freedom back in my life to just live a bit larger than other people may be comfortable with
1: but there is a fear element with that too right specifically from the parents or loved ones of people living with mental illness family members are afraid for their loved ones they are scared that the behavior that they are witnessing and that the behavior that they are not comfortable with is going to lead to their loved ones being hurt or or maybe even lead to their loved ones death and and listen I struggle because I talk with a lot of these parents and they're fighting for their children. And they say to me, Gabe, listen, we need to do this. We need to be in total control. We know what they need and our loved ones do not because of their illness and this will save their lives. And Rob, honestly, it is really compelling. They are super worried about their children. But on the other hand, in the long run, they, they seem to be doing a lot of damage and they are really misguided. Do you think this type of fear could be driving some of this?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it can be, it's a bit helicopter parenting, right? Like, okay, like I maybe I have to have a higher tolerance for some of the risk-taking that she will engage in. And I think that that's something that these parents may need to sometimes learn too, that yes, I'm sorry, it does sound really difficult and and, and, <laughs> and painful, but you know what? this is not a solution like you're calling it a solution it is for you but clearly your loved one is continuing to resist right even when they're on these drugs and they continually need to be coerced and is that truly in the long run we're we're such a risk averse society but it's it's difficult to say that people think that you're dismissing their, their the danger or whatever but i i do think we're overly our whole approach to this is is very much like we can't let i think ndrn lawyer said it to me he goes yeah once you're in this system you're not allowed to make ordinary mistakes anymore you can't live like a normal like a normal person is allowed to make bad choices when you're in the system you're no longer permitted to make bad choices in your daily life and, and the helicopter sort of control of the family or the practitioners of the overseers
1: exactly you are in the worst position to live a perfect life because we are sick, uh, but we have the highest expectation to be uh, perfect, mistake free. Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, and that's just one piece of this whole puzzle.
1: Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. He does the show with me, Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. And we're back with the author of Your Consent is Not Required The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships, Rob Wypond. You have spent years researching your book and following up on all of these cases. Can you share some examples of what you have witnessed and how these things are playing out in the real world?
0: A great example to use because it's so well documented is the case of New York Police Department whistleblower Adrian Schoolcraft. He'd been complaining internally for some years, about a certain kind of corruption within the New York Police Department. And he was ultimately forced by his fellow police officers into a psychiatric hospital. And they spun a story, uh, such a good story, that in fact, then in the psychiatric hospital, they diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, because he thought all the other police officers were against him. And in the end... What he had been doing, though, is he had been recording the conversations. He had a lot of documentation. And when he got released about six days later from the psychiatric hospital, he contacted news media and began to expose everything. And so he was vindicated and he won a lawsuit against the city of New York and the police department and the hospital and all of that. So great for him. Right. But not many people out there have the wherewithal, right, to do all the recordings of all the conversations and all of that that vindicated him. They would have just been labeled as a paranoid schizophrenic rather than uh, a hero, a whistleblower who exposed corruption within the police force. And so I highlight that just to go, this is the situation we're in where this kind of thing can happen. And it can happen relatively easily, so easily that police consciously and deliberately used it as a way to discredit somebody. And that kind of knowledge permeates the whole country. That's the kind of example I want to highlight from a more nefarious angle. Now, one that's a little more, um, let's call it legitimate, but I think is equally concerning is Cindy Fisher. Here was a a woman who really was concerned about her child, uh, who was struggling. She'd gone through some crisis in his life, and she was concerned and took him to a psychiatrist who within a half an hour diagnosed him with schizophrenia and gave him antipsychotics and she and the son indeed at that time agreed to take them so they were voluntary patients so for years then Cindy was increasingly needing to be coercive with these medications with her son because He wasn't experiencing any positive effects and indeed was experiencing negative effects, but at that point was confused too, like how much of this is the drug? How much of it is my own struggles that I was having? And so was she confused, but she just trusted and believed in the doctors and what the doctors were saying and so became increasingly coercive with him and started to call 911 on him if he wasn't going to take his medications, get him locked up so that he would be forced to take them again. And then gradually, though, she saw it still was not helping. And over time, she switched around and started to defend his rights and become concerned that, okay, maybe the drugs are not the solution. They were African-American. So she was saying, are there African-American therapists who could speak with my son? No. Were there alternative approaches? Could they taper the medications because the medications seem very powerful? No. Like the doctors had started to object. Who are you to tell us what should take place here? And she ended up in extraordinary conflict then with the treatment providers such that they then tried to seize control, guardianship over her son, and they were successful in getting that. And this is not an uncommon story. I heard this from many families who... There are some that just continue to believe that the drugging is the best that could possibly happen for their child, but other family members start to question it and say, well, what are the alternatives? What other approaches could they take? And then they find that the system is very resistant to change, very resistant to providing any kind of alternatives, and they end up in conflict. And they quickly discover they have no rights, that these laws have been deliberately set up in a way to prevent them from being able to influence this kind of a situation.
1: One of the things that worries me so much about forced treatment is that it is ultimately harmful. You only get one bite at the apple, right? And forcing someone to do something only works while you are forcing them. Once you stop forcing them, they don't trust you anymore. They don't have faith in the system anymore. They don't have faith in the process anymore. And they're not going to reach out for help. And well, frankly, they're going to stay the hell away from you. They're going to stay the hell away from the mental health system entirely. They will probably avoid everything and start getting no treatment at all. So family members who are like, look, I know they need treatment. I know this is what's best for them. And that's why I'm doing this, even though this is not what they want. I I just have to say, okay, but is this the long-term solution you're looking for? Or have you only solved the problem for a year, two years, or more hell, five years? And that's really such a small amount of time, especially if your loved one is showing the symptoms of the stereotypical ages of 16 to 24. Let's say that you get them stable, and I'm going to go from 24 to 29. What happens from 29 on? They're going to be just very, very traumatized. I, I just they they avoid everything and they get nothing. And it really seems like your data is backing up that this is not a good long-term solution.
0: Yeah, and that's such a good point. It's a very important point that it really only works once because, okay, now that you've done that, that person's never going to feel safe calling anyone because they know there's this extreme risk of being subjected to something that that traumatized them. So how can you believe in this? Like I ask these practitioners that I'm frankly aghast that psychiatrists aren't the one speaking out against forced treatment because you see this every day but instead what they've done is they're expanding it right their justification for the fact that it's clearly failing a giant segment of their own patient group it's clearly not working for them their reaction to that is okay we need it more we need to do it longer we need to get in earlier got to get them younger Everything right now is moving towards expanding and expanding and expanding the amount of time and the degree of the force. And I'm saying it's time to look in the other direction. It's time to back up from that and go, look, there's a huge segment of the population of these patient groups that this is not working for. All it's doing is driving them away. They become afraid to seek help even when they they know it, even when they want it. And that's what I want to highlight, too. We should not equate help with force. And that seems to be what we're doing when we have this dialogue. We say, oh, yeah, if we're not... If we're not sending the police out, we're not helping them. Well, wait a minute. There's a lot of other ways to help a person who's in distress. I've seen people, I've been with people in extremely high states of distress, and you can still find ways to talk with them. You can still find ways to connect. And that's what we need to do way more as a culture, as a society, as families, is look for those things to say. Look, I really do want to help you. What do you need? What do you want? Turn that question back to the person. What's really distressing you? Because often you you keep that conversation up beyond the initial Uh, high-level fear the person might have, often they'll start to articulate things that aren't that unreasonable, like, well, I really want a safe housing. I don't feel safe in my housing, and here's why. Or I really want to talk to a person that I do trust, and here's that person's name, and things like that. There's very little science out there to suggest that forcibly treating people actually helps them. This is not a scientific thing at all. So I'm saying let's at least Get the data, let's, let's find out how many people in America really are being forcibly detained and forcibly treated. Let's find out what's actually happening to them. What do they report as their feelings? Are they, are they glad? Are they not glad? What sort of outcomes are we getting? Are they getting housing? Are they getting jobs? Are they feeling better, getting back to their families, getting along well with their families? Or is their whole life starting to spin out of control? Are they traumatized? So I find lots of evidence for negatives, but the numbers in the end we really don't have. So I say we need, we need to be way more transparent about the fact that this is going on and how brutal for some people it is, and, and then start doing some more analysis, and then much more robust oversight to prevent the kinds of abuses that are clearly coming on right now in psychiatric care.
1: Rob, thank you so much for being here. His book is Your Consent Is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships. It's out now. I'm sure you can get it on Amazon. Rob, where can folks find you online?
0: So they can find me easily enough at my website. If you know how to spell my name, Rob Wypond, W-I-P-O-N-D, robwipond.com, And I also have a newsletter and a blog there. And they can find me on Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube. And yeah, and they can also order the book through their local bookstore or anywhere online.
1: Awesome. Rob, once again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. You are very welcome, Rob. And a big thank you to all of our listeners as well. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am an award winning public speaker who could be available for your next event. I'm also the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations, which is on Amazon, but you can grab a signed copy with free podcast swag or learn more about me by heading over to GabeHoward.com. Wherever you downloaded this episode, please follow or subscribe to the show. It is 100% free. And do me a favor, tell people about the show, mention it in a support group, put it on social media. Hell, send a text. Sharing the show is how we grow. I will see everybody next Thursday on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com/slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.